This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to the coming wave? Question mark. Please join me in welcoming Dean Brady. So with all that background, you would think that I could actually make predictions correctly, but I want to warn you for everything I say subsequently, that in 2016, I predicted that Donald Trump would not win, could not see a way he could win, and it would just be really surprising if he did. So I was wrong. So take what I say with a grain of salt. Uh, Let me just tell you a little bit about where I think the Republican Party is right now, because I think that's the most interesting thing that's going on right now is the changes within that party as it becomes increasingly Mr. Trump's party. I think there's four groups in the Republican Party. One is white evangelicals. Uh, they love Donald Trump's uh, court appointments. Uh, they're very happy with his perspectives with respect to social policy issues like abortion and gay marriage and so forth. Um, and surprisingly have not been very much distressed about some of his uh, pronouncements about women and morality and so forth. So uh, that's a bit of a surprise, but that's where they are. Another group is the traditional Republicans, um, conservatives. Um, They care about things like deficits. Uh, They care about civility and politics. uh, And they care about free trade. And they're globalists. They're really confused about Donald Trump right now. And these are the folks in the Republican Party, uh, many of whom are never Trumpers, Uh, many of whom are just finding themselves having a very hard time supporting uh, Donald Trump. A third group is libertarians. Uh, These are folks who believe that the best government is the least government. Uh, They love the tax cut. They think that's great. Government's getting out of their businesses. Uh, But they hate Donald Trump's free trade policies. So they're feeling a bit confused about Donald Trump right now as well. And then there's the populist right, which is the absolute core of Trump's supporters. Um, These are folks who are against free trade because they think free trade has been bad for them in terms of jobs. Um, They're worried about inequality, actually, if you look at the polling data. They they do think that the country is in a situation where it's harder for them to get ahead and their children won't do as well as they did. They're xenophobic. Uh, Some of them are are, uh, racist. Um, They're nationalistic. Uh, the populist right is, as I say, the core of Trump supporters. Uh, and right now, the question is, is how is this really odd coalition going to hold together? Uh, and the answer is, it's not really holding together. And there are some pieces of it that seem to be floating off in other directions. When, and at the same time, parts of it are becoming stronger and stronger as Trump supporters. So the populist right, which used to be a group that would sometimes be picked up by Democrats, Barack Obama, for example, picked up a surprising fraction of it in 2008 and 2012, uh, the populist right is becoming extremely solidly Trump supporters. Okay, so where does that lead us? Um, Well, let me just explain a little bit about Trump supporters, uh, Republicans, and Democrats. One simple way to understand the difference between the two parties right now is that Republicans are people whose income is higher than you might expect given their education. Income is higher than you might expect given their education. Think used car dealers. They may be only graduated from high school, but they've done very well as a used car dealer. They have small businesses and so forth. Democrats are people whose education is higher than you would expect given their income. Think social welfare worker. Think professors. Um, And these are people who often work for government and who have high education, but not necessarily really high incomes. And what we're finding in America is increasingly a situation where the two groups really don't like one another. The used car dealer says, I made it on my own without higher education. I'm not even sure my child needs to do that. And by the way, that's why you see in the polling data, the Republicans for the first time ever are losing support. There's less and less support among Republicans for higher education. It's a shocking trend and really surprising. Democrats are increasing their support for higher education. So we're really seeing a sea change in the two parties in that respect. Um, Where are the battlegrounds? The battlegrounds are between the central cities, which are solidly Democratic, and the rural areas, which are solidly Republican. And they're the suburban areas, 
especially suburban women who are distressed with Mr. Trump over a number of issues, which should be obvious. Um, and those are the areas that are going to matter most in terms of the results. What are the results going to be? Here now I'm going to try to predict. Good luck. Um, so let me just tell you a few ways you can predict the outcome. One way people often do it is they look at the popularity of the president. There is a strong relationship between the popularity of the president at midterm and the number of seats that his party, and it's always been his party, uh, wins or loses. Trump popularity is very low. And by that measure, it should be the case that the Democrats win a lot of seats. The problem with this is the concern that the economy is also doing very well. And in the past, we've never had a president who was unpopular when the economy was doing so well. So this is a unique and different kind of election where we have not seen historical precedent. And we have to be nervous about believing that the old rules apply. So it's conceivable that Mr. Trump and his party will do well in the midterms based upon the fact that the economy is going great guns. A second way is look at the generic vote right now. That puts the Democrats about eight percentage points up. This is a question that's asked on polling. If the election were held today, what would you vote for in your congressional election, uh, the Democrat or the Republican? And Democrats are about eight percentage points ahead on that, about 50% to 42%. That suggests about 225 seats for the Democrats. That would give them uh, a majority by about seven seats because you have to get 218 to win. To, to be in the majority. Uh, then President Napolitano is going to talk about some of the various sources out there that have uh, looked race by race, and that's another way to look at things, and she's going to talk about those. But let me just add one more way you can look, and that's history. From 1932 to 1994, every house, every congressional uh, house was Democratic except for 47, 49 during the Truman administration and 53, 55 during the Eisenhower administration. Then, starting in 1992, actually 1994, things started to change. 1992, Clinton got elected. Two years later, the Gingrich Revolution meant that the Republicans took over the House. So two years after Clinton was elected. Bush is elected in 2000. I think he was on his way, because his popularity was going down, to losing a lot of seats in the 2002 midterm, but didn't because of 9-11. And therefore, he got all the way to 2006 before he, too, lost the House, and the Democrats took over in 2006. Obama won in 2008. Two years later, he lost the House with 242 seats for the Republicans. By the historical record and what's been going on recently, that suggests that the Democrats will take over the House. And that's in accord with all the other measures and approaches that I've described. But I wouldn't count on it because it's very close. Most of the predictions get you to about 220, 222, 223 for the expected number of House seats that the Democrats will win. And that doesn't give you much margin of error. And it's also the case that we're just not sure if the dynamics that we've seen in the past are operating in this election. So with that, let me stop and introduce our next speaker. Uh, president Napolitano is the president of the University of California, 10 campuses, five medical centers, three affiliated national laboratories, and a statewide department of agriculture and natural resources. 234,000 students, 208,000 faculty and staff, and more than 1.6 million living alumni. She's a distinguished public servant. She's been the two-term governor of Arizona, and Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, she's also one of the Goldman School of Public Policy's illustrious faculty members. Please join me in welcoming President Janet Napolitano. So blue or red? Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Dean. And, and, and I have to uh, uh, say that if uh, past is prologue, uh, what we saw happen with predictions involving the 2016 presidential race uh, should lend us all a little bit of skepticism about polling and its accuracy uh, uh, and its uh, veracity, uh, particularly in what I've, I think of as a very fluid time in American politics. Um, but uh, just to, just to 
quickly survey the landscape. Uh, if uh, you look at the U.S. House of Representatives uh, and you look at uh, three sources, Inside Elections, the Cook Political Report, uh, and Larry Sabato's um, uh, report, um, uh, you come up with about 110 uh, competitive seats. And if you look only at those competitive seats, it would seem, as of the most recent data, that we are headed toward a very healthy midterm election from the Democrats' perspective. Just a, a couple of data points. Uh, uh, um, 37, 37 Republican incumbents currently trail their Democratic challengers. Of the 28 open seats, Democrats currently lead in 26. Uh, Democrats have outraged Republicans in 98 of the races. Republicans have outraged Democrats in 12 of the races. Democrats have more cash on hand as of today. In 71 races, Republicans have more cash on hand in 39. So if you just uh, take those three sources, which go district by district, look at the competitive districts, etc., it seems as though uh, the Democrats, in all likelihood, should take back the House. Um, on the flip side, on the Senate, it's a terrible map uh, for the Democrats. Uh, and... Um, there are lots of very, very close races across the map, uh, uh, but uh, Republicans uh, seem to be holding and indeed uh, gaining so that they in all likelihood look to pick up a seat or two. And as we saw in the vote on the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, uh, for example, in the vote on the confirmation of, of now Justice Kavanaugh as a second example, um, one or two votes really matters in, in the U.S. Senate. Uh, uh, but right now, there are margin of error races in Florida, in Montana, seats currently held by uh, Democrats. Uh, there's margin of error uh, races in Missouri. Uh, there are incumbent Democrats who are uh, trending uh, behind in the polls, uh, in places like Indiana and North Dakota. Um, there are a few open seats, um, and those are going to be some very interesting uh, elections. There's an open seat in Arizona, a state that I'm a little bit familiar with. Um, and there um, it is a, a contest between two women, uh, Kirsten Sinema and Martha McSally, um, both are incumbent members of Congress who uh, left the Congress in order to run for the Senate. And right now, uh, the Democrat is uh, polling ahead, but by just a few points. And that's dangerous territory in Arizona, uh, which tends to settle uh, on the Republican side in, in close elections. So that's one to watch. There's a very, very close race in Florida. Uh, where the incumbent, uh, Bill Nelson, is running against the governor, uh, Rick Scott. Uh, much to everyone's surprise, um, because Scott has um, outspent Nelson by quite a bit, uh, Nelson seems to be polling a little bit uh, ahead. And there's an interesting governor's race in Florida uh, that marries up uh, with that. Uh, and then Missouri uh, is, a, is a very close race. The incumbent Claire uh, McCaskill running against the Attorney General, uh, uh, Josh Hawley. Um, and what's interesting about that race is that uh, it, it encapsulates a little bit of uh, the Republicans' difficulty in handling one of the top issues uh, uh, in these congressional races, which is the issue of health care and pre-existing conditions. Um, and so you see poll after poll after poll where people are asked to rank their top issue, health care, protection of coverage for pre-existing uh, conditions at the top. Uh, Hawley, as attorney general, 
signed on to a brief that was filed uh, by a case with a number of Republican state attorneys general uh, that seeks to invalidate the entire Affordable Care Act, including its protection for pre-existing conditions. Um, but if you watch his ads, uh, you would think that he is the number one defender of uh, the protection of pre-existing conditions. And we see a number of Republican candidates who are caught in this conundrum having voted for the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, now coming up against that in the messaging by the Democrats, really focused on that issue. Um, So uh, crystal ball, Um, I, I think in all likelihood the Republicans not only hold the Senate, but pick up uh, a seat or two in the Senate. Um, I think in all likelihood, but we're talking laws of probability here, not certainty. Uh, the Democrats take the House and the question will be what the margin is. What the margin is will have an impact on the organization of House leadership. It also may have an impact on the issues Uh, that uh, are taken up. Um, If the Republicans hold hold the Senate and keep the House, I think we will see another effort to repeal the Affordable uh, Care Act. I think we'll see an effort to make permanent some of the provisions of the tax cut uh, that were not uh, permanent in its initial iteration. Um, uh, and I, I think we will see a, a continued lack of oversight of the executive branch. Democrats take, um, uh, particularly the House, uh, what I think we will see, and I would hope we would see, would be rejuvenation of the oversight function of the Congress. Um, not impeachment but uh, really going at what's been going on in the agencies, what's been going on in the rulemaking process, uh, what's been going on with the adherence or non-adherence to the ethical rules uh, governing uh, uh, the executive branch. Um, But uh, um, there's going to be an awful lot of activity over the next week. Stay tuned. Thank you so much. Uh, our final panelist is Professor Robert Reich. Uh, he's the Carmel P. Friesen Professor of Public Policy here at the Goldman School of Public Policy and Senior Fellow at the Blum Center for Developing Economies. He served as Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration, for which Time magazine named him one of the 10 most effective cabinet secretaries of the 20th century. He's written 14 books. Aftershock, The Work of Nations, Beyond Outrage, and most recently, The Common Good. He's founding editor of the American Prospect magazine, chairman of Common Cause, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and co-creator of two documentaries, so we have a movie star here at the Goldman School, Inequality for All and Saving Capitalism. Professor Reich. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Well, I'm going to respectfully disagree with my colleagues (laughs) about the House. Uh, And I wish I didn't have to. Because basically, I am an optimistic person. uh, But I think that as I read it, Democrats will have to overall have a margin of over 11%, closer to 12% over Republicans in House voting, across the country in order to take the House, given the degree of gerrymandering and voter suppression now going on. And I don't see, given what I see so far, and I'm happy to talk about that more, I don't see it happening. Uh, But anything can happen. Uh, You know, these days when you hear people make predictions about uh, politics, uh, those are far, far less Uh, credible, I think, than weather reports or stock predictions or anything else. Uh, But let me just say a couple of things by by way of background to explain what I'm talking about. I don't think, uh, Henry, this has much to do with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I think what we're seeing right now is a contest between authoritarianism and democracy. Uh, And uh, why is authoritarianism 
But why does it even have a chance of winning? Why did it win in 2016? Uh, well, I think authoritarianism is winning in the United States for slightly different reasons uh, than it is winning in elsewhere, other places around the world. I think it's winning here in part because of the failure over the last 35 years of Democratic and Republican administrations uh, and our entire political establishment to do much about uh, wages and increasing insecurity. Now, there's a big debate, as many of you know, about whether it was racism or economics that put Trump in office. I don't think it was one or the other. I think it was both. It's the interaction. Uh, if you have 35 years of stagnant wages and you have one group, not blacks, not Hispanics or Latinos, uh, not college graduates, one group that is actually dropping over the last 35 years, not just stagnating, but dropping in terms of their incomes relative to the median, it is whites without college degrees. They are and have been for quite some time. You, you could have seen this coming. I mean, Ross Perot in 1992 was appealing to them, uh, and there have been other appeals to them, but never an appeal quite as bold and direct as Donald Trump. Uh, if you have that much stagnation or decline, really a decline in prospects. You have people who are susceptible to demagoguery, uh, and that demagoguery takes the form or can take the form of racism and xenophobia and genderism uh, and every other, and misogyny and every other kind of hatefulness and fear. This is an administration driven by hatefulness and fear. It has a propaganda organization called Fox News. We've never had that before on the scale we have now. Uh, and it is one that has taken on the mainstream press directly and consistently. It has taken on facts, analysis, science, policy. It basically is a reversion against the Enlightenment. And I don't mean to say that lightly. It is really an attack on the Enlightenment, 17th, 18th century Enlightenment. We have not seen anything like this. Again, there have been hints. There was Father Coughlin in the 30s. Uh, there was Huey Long. There was George Wallace in 1968. We've seen glimmers of this. Uh, maybe glimmers is the wrong term. Uh, but we've not seen the full-blown consequences. Uh, now, why isn't America rising against this? Why aren't people that believe in democracy rising against this? Well, to some extent, they are. But again, I want to make sure we face the reality. It's not just voter suppression, old time. Uh, this is a new form of voter suppression. Uh, since uh, the Shelby against Holder decision, uh, we've got a lot of states that are no longer, they're basically free to do whatever they want without preclearance from the Justice Department. And you have additional states uh, that are, we're not even under the Voting Rights Act that are uh, actively suppressing voting. And I'm, it's voting IDs. It is purges of voting rolls. Uh, it is, uh, well, let's look at what's going on in Georgia uh, with the Secretary of State of Georgia, who's a candidate for governor, who is actually holding up 56,000 votes, uh, many of 70% of them uh, are blacks. Uh, we've got in Kansas, state after state of state, not even states that were subject to the preclearance, uh, engaged in very active, the degree of voting suppression we see is, is simply unprecedented, at least in the modern era. And I'm talking about over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, so it's going to be very hard uh, for Democrats. Now, going back to what Henry said, if the economy was bad, then we might have a chance to motivate a lot of people to get to the voting booths. My great worry is that the combination of an economy that most people, you know, most people live in two worlds. They live in their own personal little bubble in which they say to themselves, well, eh, things are going okay. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not great, but I'm okay. Uh, and then there is the world that they understand is outside the bubble that is America and even the world. And they are cognizant of the fact that there is authoritarianism loose in the country. A lot of people that care about this country, care about the world, care about democracy. But will they be motivated uh, to actually go out and vote? Will young people who, uh, remember in, in 2014, last midterm election, only 16% of people be the between the ages of uh, 
18 and 29 bothered to vote, 16%. Uh, even if it's higher, if it's 18 or 19%, that's not enough. Uh, are we going to get uh, Hispanics, Latinos out in the numbers that are needed uh, to really uh, take on this? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, what about women? Well, I think women are the big, uh, what, what I am relying on, when I wake up in the middle of the night and say to my wife, is there really any possibility here? Uh, I think of the women of this country, I think, are who are very, very mobilized. Uh, but uh, again, that's the, that's the big question. Uh, the next big question in my mind, and I'll stop on this, uh, is uh, what happens next? What happens next? Whether or not the Democrats take back Congress, so-called flip Congress, what is the long-term uh, prognosis? What do we do over the next two years? And I say we, I'm talking about Democrats with a small d. Uh, this is not a political forum. I'm not taking sides. I'm talking about people who believe in democracy. Uh, what do we do? What's the strategy over the next two years when you have an authoritarian who doesn't believe in democracy, in control of the presidency, and whose demagoguery is so strong that he has turned the republics in Congress into essentially lapdogs, sycophants, a group of people who, I mean, I've, I've worked with a lot of Republicans in Congress over you know, the past 30 years. I've never seen a group that has no integrity whatsoever. Uh, the few who do are not running for re-election. They're scared, or they're opportunists, or they're starting to sound exactly like him. So again, what is the strategy over the next two years? I would love to talk about that. I will end my upbeat <laughs> presentation. Thank you very much. So this is a question from Facebook, um, and it asks about suburban women in the U.S., and uh, I said they were distressed by Trump, and the question is, why are they distressed by Trump, and what is the likelihood that they are going to make the difference? Bob alluded to them as being very important. I wanted to ask President Napolitano if you could give me a sense of what you think is going on with suburban women right now. Well, I think a, 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 a couple of things. Um, uh, 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 one is, uh, um, and I'm talking generalizations now, but uh, kind of a, a, a sense of uh, being turned off by his personal behavior, his statements, um, uh, the um, access Hollywood tapes, etc. I think that still has uh, some impact. Um, his uh, uh, the language he's used and the and the kind of way he refers to people and attacks people uh, uh, turns them off. I don't think he's really uh, talking to them about their issues. I mean, their issues are about education. Uh, their issues are about uh, caring for uh, elderly parents and how do you manage that. Their issues are uh, uh, really about um, uh, how you juggle, on the one hand, uh, raising children, on the other hand, uh, caring, uh, caring for your elderly. So they're both suburban and they're sandwiched. Uh, between generations, and and he really doesn't uh, address them uh, directly. And you add to that kind of his bombasticness, and uh, and 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 then uh, you add uh, for a number of them the issues about access to reproductive health um, and reproductive rights, and you've got kind of a, a stew. One of the things. Uh, um, I noticed when I was running for office, however, and I think still holds true, is that many women voters are late deciders. Um, and so uh, 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 these kind of late deciding uh, populations of, of women uh, around the, the country could shift some of these very close house races. 
Um, so we've talked about what might be motivating some of the swing voters uh, that might make the difference for the Democrats. How about the Republicans? What's uh, motivating them? How do we factor that into our midterm predictions? Um, specifically, how is the focus on the caravan, for example, that Mr. Trump is having right now, the whole immigration issue and so forth, and maybe other issues? What issues do we see that's motivating Trump voters? So, Robert? I, I think it's fear. Uh, I think uh, Trump is a master at manipulating fears and uh, the consequences of fear, which is hate. Uh, the caravan is a nothing. I mean, anybody who's actually looking at that sees it's a, a bedraggled group of people uh, who are basically living off of uh, handouts uh, from people along the way. I mean, a lot of children, a lot of families that are struggling. Uh, the idea that this is infiltrated by uh, terrorists, there's not one iota of evidence. And then just uh, today, this morning, uh, the president talks about getting rid of the 14th Amendment, essentially by executive order, saying that anybody whose parents came over illegally into the United States, uh, even though they were born in the United States, cannot be American citizens. Having This has absolutely no chance of passing constitutional muster, but it is designed uh, to inflame uh, voters. Uh, these are, again, uh, the techniques of, of demagogues. So one uh, person writes, democratic strategy has been very cautious and small bore. What are, why was this done? Why are Democrats not trying to get some really big issue that they're focusing on across all the different House races? And is this a mistake on their part? Would there have been a better way to approach the midterm elections? Well, I think, um, first of all, uh, I, I'm not sure that um, every Democratic candidate has been small bore. You hear a lot of them campaigning on single-payer health care. Uh, you hear a lot of them campaigning on free college or debt-free college. Um, those are some big ideas. Um, uh, the, you know, I, what, what the Democrats' ideas are not, uh, easily reduced to, however, is a slogan that fits on a baseball cap. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's hard to penetrate all the, uh, all the noise out there. Um, uh, but uh, I don't think there is one overall democratic strategy. Um, I think they're very candidate-specific. They're very locale-specific. Um, and uh, some are big, some are small, um, uh, but uh, in, uh, in, in, in general, uh, they're not easily sloganized. So, uh, and that is an issue for Democrats when you have a person in the White House who is so capable uh, at uh, really using uh, the media and uh, in a way... Uh, uh, targeting the media, weaponizing uh, uh, the media. For all his complaints about the media, he's uh, the most uh, uh, or the best um, user of it we've seen in, in the modern era. Yeah, let me also add that I think that House races really differ in the demographics that candidates face. And so it's not necessarily the case that one Democratic House candidate should use the same strategy as another Democratic House not candidate. And in fact, they might need to use quite different candidates. Uh, so, for example, in Arizona right now, the Democratic candidate is taking positions that are pretty conservative on some issues uh, and is, as you said, at the moment at least, about three percentage points ahead in the polls. So that's one way to, to, to play the game is to tailor what you're doing to different constituencies. Um, Bob, the, the economy is doing well in terms of unemployment statistics, but we know that there's still this problem with middle-class wages not growing as fast as people would like. Uh, how come that hasn't become a more important issue in this election? And what's to be done about it to make it an issue since you've spent a lot of time trying to make it an issue? Well, I think it is an issue. Uh, it's not become a politicized issue, as it could be and should be. Uh, stagnant wages are uh, something that people have lived with for a long time, but it's not just stagnant wages. It's also loss of economic security. It's a movement more and more people into the contract work economy and off steady work. 
which means they have no labor protections whatsoever. Uh, it's also a, uh, a situation in which more and more people are, are worried about their retirement, they're worried about health care, they're worried about education, and they're worried about housing, all of uh, the expenses, all of which are rising faster than inflation. Uh, now, Democrats used to be the parting of the working class. That was part of the New Deal coalition. That was part of uh, the emergence of the, of the larger middle class was primarily because the working class uh, had upward mobility after the 19, really after the war, after, after the Second World War. And, uh, and the Democrats have basically given up being the party of the working class. Uh, now, I could get into a lot of detail about that, uh, but going back to this election, let me just say uh, that there is a, a battle in the Democratic Party that is analogous to what was the battle in the Republican Party uh, between the anti-establishment Democrats and the establishment Democrats. And that battle is going to be very evident uh, over the next month. Uh, right after the midterms, we're going to see the establishment Democrats who want to be president dive in, including at least three billionaires that I know of. Uh, and we're going to see a few anti-establishment Bernie Sanders types dive in. Uh, and then the fireworks begin. Uh, I should say a number of these questions have been from Facebook. Um, and uh, here's uh, another one. Uh, what's the next step if Democrats don't take back the House? Uh, what would they do? What should they do? How should they proceed? Well, this is where the races for governor become so important. And uh, because, as Bob said, uh, um, actually, um, overall, Democrats need, need, need to win across the country by between 8 and 10 points in order to compensate for the effect of gerrymandering and, and voter suppression. Um, and we'll have a new census in 2020, uh, and the governors of the country will have an inordinate impact in most states on how those congressional districts get, get drawn. So uh, um, although we're talking federal races here this, this afternoon, uh, I, I think in terms of the long-term health of the party, we need to look at the governor's races. And the Democrats have not been very good at, at really mounting challenges uh, in the 50 states. They've been way behind where the Republicans have been. Is that true? In governor's races? In governor's. In the past. Uh, not yeah, not no, this round. This, this, this round they're this trying. Round but in the past, they've, they've not done well. That's right. Uh, but uh, in this round, we have uh, a high like likelihood that uh, more Democrats will be elected governor, and particularly in some very important states in the upper Midwest, for example, uh, in the Northeast. I already mentioned uh, Florida. Um, so uh, those governor's races could really help tell the tale of the tape post-2020. Well, and in fact, speaking of that, how about uh, Andrew Gillum in Florida? Do you think black progressive candidates uh, can win in the South? Um, he seems to be doing relatively well, but can he win? Uh, that's a that's going to be a turnout election. Same in Georgia. And in Georgia, as Bob said, you've got the Republican Secretary of State um, who is sitting on 56,000-some-odd ballots, 70% of which are uh, estimated to be from African Americans, uh, that don't uh, meet their registration match requirements, um, where they're insisting on 100% matching between what what uh, uh, is put on the registration form and and uh, what's put um, uh, on the on the mail-in ballot um, uh, for uh, to be counted uh, so uh, you know uh, both but both Georgia and Florida uh, we we could see African American uh, progressives win. <sighs> So here's a quick question uh, from uh, the reporter from the Daily Californian. If Democrats take back the House, could this foreshadow what will happen to Trump in 2020? So I know you don't think it's going to happen, Bob, but suppose it does No, I think, the, I, 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 don't, I think the odds are against it. I'm, I'm hoping, I'm, I am hoping that it happens. Uh, but let me, uh, let me just say this. We haven't talked yet about money in politics. 
and that is a big deal as well. Uh, the Democrats or Democratic candidates have done f remarkably well this round in raising small donations. Uh, some of them are raising big donations as well. But Republicans have the deepest pockets. Uh, and a lot of the money that is going into advertising in this last week or last two weeks has come from deep Republican pockets. Uh, I think uh, if Republican, if Democrats take back the House, uh, in fact, even regardless, uh, Democrats really do have to focus on three big things that are structural. Number one, campaign finance reform, getting big money out of politics. This is going to be hard to do because a lot of Democrats are reliant on big money. Secondly is antitrust. Uh, and I say that because uh, one of the big populist quote-unquote issues that is not being addressed is the consolidation of economic, of economic power in this country. And the third is labor, labor law reform. Uh, labor unions used to be the ground troops of the Democratic Party, and they are no longer because they're down to a very small fraction of the workforce. Great. Thank you. President Napolitano, do you have thoughts? If the Democrats win the House, will that foreshadow Trump losing in 2020? No. Um, uh, I think House elections are different than presidential elections. Um, I think the, the Democrats are, are uh, the line goes out the door in terms of uh, the number of people who are, are going to put their toe in the water. Um, and it will likely be, a, a, um, uh, as, as, as Bob suggested, there'll be a kind of a clear division between uh, uh, more liberal candidates and more um, moderate to, to conservative candidates. Um, I think uh, the field won't narrow till we're, we've uh, gone through Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada, the first two primary states and the first two caucus states. And then, and then the primary heads right to California. Um, and that will be a big change in this electoral cycle versus uh, the last ones where California has not, not been held until June. Uh, so candidates to compete in California in that rich trove of uh, uh, delegates um, uh, are, gonna, are going to have to have lots of money and lots of organization um, earlier rather than later, which is why I think the field will narrow uh, substantially very quickly. So from Facebook, we have a question, how do we get facts to matter again? And I'd like to expand that a little bit. Uh, I think one could argue that Mr. Trump has violated a lot of norms that were in place about how leaders should act, uh, and that it may be hard to get back to those norms, which maybe were useful for a functioning democracy, things like not calling the news fake, things like respecting journalists and so forth. Um, how do we get back to that? Can we get back to that? Or are those rules irrevocably broken and we're going to have just a new kind of politics where they don't matter anymore? Bob? Uh, well, I would hate to live in a society in which facts don't matter. Uh, I don't know what we're doing in a university, what we're doing in a public policy school, if facts don't matter. Uh, speaking truth to power is the basic uh, premise of much of what many of us do and watch much of what we believe in. Uh, but I think that the assault on truth uh, is a very deep and fundamental part of what is going on right now. A survey that I mentioned to the, uh, both of you uh, that I read recently of uh, Trump supporters found that 90% of them would believe Trump over the mainstream media on a factual issue. Uh, now, think of what that means in terms of even elections. I mean, suppose, and I hate to even bring this possibility up, but suppose uh, in 2020 uh, there was a close election. And Trump said that he won. And it doesn't matter. He's not leaving. He contests the election. Or suppose in 20, uh, 2018, suppose this time around, uh, the Democrats win by a very slim margin in the House. And he says, it doesn't matter. They didn't. I know they didn't. I think there was massive voting fraud. 
Now, where you see the, 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 the logical conundrum that that leads us into, that direct confrontation between authoritarianism and the fundamentals of democracy, which are, in turn are rooted in the Enlightenment. We can't avoid this. Uh, we've got to, all of us, understand that truth is a public good. We've got to act as if truth and know that truth is a public good. Now, the mainstream press doesn't always get it. Uh, professors, researchers don't always get it. But I think we all have an obligation to our society to reinforce the notion that truth is important. President Napolitano, truth is important. I don't think you're going to disagree with that. I, I, <laughs> I hope not. I, uh, 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 I, I do not. Um, uh, but I, you know, I, I um, you, you know, when uh, I don't lose sleep about a lot of things, but one of the things that I am worried about is the, the, the future of the country, our ability to govern, um, to govern ourselves, our ability to have an engaged um, citizenry, um, our ability to uh, make evidence-based, data-driven uh, uh, policy decisions and policy arguments um, in, an, uh, uh, in a time when uh, uh, someone can uh, say the sky is blue and the other person says, no, the sky is red, the sky is red, the sky is red, the sky is red, and uh, you know, a, a significant percentage of, of people say, oh, the sky must be red. Um, and you know, we, we live in a representative democracy and it is, you know, uh, it is every citizen's responsibility to be uh, uh, educated on the issues that affect them and to listen and to have some kind of critical thinking uh, uh, capability that they bring with them uh, to the polls. The polls are not a place for uh, uh, basically a, a, a temper tantrum. A, a, a poll is a place where you express uh, your opinion, your best judgment as to who would be the best person to uh, hold office. And uh, I, I just see us kind of retreating away from that. Uh, and so I, I, you know, one of the things I think we need to, to focus on is how do we energize you all, the next generation, uh, to believe in the worth of government, the value of politics, the value of public service in this uh, era where uh, truth is uh, not valued. There's a lot of questions here about what's going on in America, and we've talk, touched on that a little bit, and we could spend a lot more time. So one person asks uh, from Twitter, is it hyperbole to say that our democracy is no longer functional? I think we've talked about that a little bit. And instead of getting into those kinds of questions, which are, let us say, depressing, um, could each of you come up with something that's sort of a little bit more positive right now about what's where we're going, uh, for example, it could be something like rah-rah, the University of California, where we're doing good things. I, I could well, go let, for let, that. Let, let me be positive, uh, because I've spent too much time being a little bit negative, or more negative than I usually am. Uh, number one, I have an extraordinary appreciation and belief in all of you and in your generation. And by you, I mean people who are either undergraduates or in graduate school uh, I've been teaching for 35 years, and I've never encountered a generation that is more publicly spirited and more committed to a better country or countries. It's not just the United States. And that makes me very, very optimistic. You're the future. Uh, secondly, I'm optimistic because the country has historically a remarkable resilience every time our country, our democracy, our institutions have been seriously threatened, as they are today. We have somehow reformed ourselves, got our act together, 
not succumbed to either communism or fascism or any kind of other kind of ism. We are very pragmatic. So it's the combination of pragmatism and resilience that historically I've seen and I believe in. And thirdly, I've never seen so much grassroots activity as I see this year and last year. One of the consequences of Donald Trump and authoritarianism has been to wake us up out of a complacency having to do with democracy, our system of government, the role of individuals, citizenship itself, and what we owe one another is as members of the same democracy. And I think that will be and could be a huge and important legacy looking back on this cataclysmic era. President Napolitano. So now for the optimistic side of the program. <laughs> yeah, I, I, agree with, I, I agree with Bob. And, and uh, our country uh, has gone through periods like this before. Uh, the pendulum swings too far in one direction. And somehow or another, uh, we always have an ability to self-correct. Um, uh, self-correction, it's not easy. It requires a lot of engagement. Um, where I think a lot of uh, the innovations we'll see in government will occur will be at the local level. Um, it'll be at the state level. Um, uh, uh, it won't be necessarily at the federal level. Um, but I, I see in cities uh, and towns across the country lots of innovative ways to address public services, to address education, uh, uh, and, and to really deal with uh, the problems uh, that the citizenry have. So um, uh, uh, the pendulum will self-correct. Uh, um, uh, there's a lot of engagement and innovation will continue uh, to happen at the local level. Thank you. Uh, that's all we have time for. I want to thank uh, Secretary Reich and uh, President Napolitano uh, for giving us their insights about American politics. It is a challenging time. I guess I would also just remind you that America has gone through tough times before. The year 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, the Tet Offensive, the Vietnam War, the Prague Spring followed by the Soviet invasion, uh, the Democratic National Convention where there were uh, what's, it was called by a commission, police riots uh, in the streets, um, and on and on. So 68 was a pretty tough year. And Nixon. Uh, I was trying not to be partisan, but it, of course it is the year in which Richard Nixon became elected. Um, and that was a pretty tough year, and America got through it. Let's hope that even though these seem like tough times, and I think are tough times, uh, that we're going to get through them. And uh, I'm really hopeful, too, that the University of California will play a big role in that because this is a very great university and does very great things for lots of people. Uh, so thank you for being here. Thank you so very much. Thank you all. Thank you.